Welcome to life, bringing you insight and experiences into love, relationships, and fertility with a focus on enjoying life and moving forward. Today, we're going to be speaking about healthcare disparities in fertility treatment with Dr. Tia Jackson-Bay. Welcome to life, love, insight, fertility experiences. I'm here today with Dr. Tia Jackson-Bay, who is a reproductive endocrinologist and fertility specialist at RMA New York. And we're going to talk about diversity and disparity in fertility treatment and healthcare. Welcome, Dr. Jackson Day, and thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. I'm honored. The pleasure is mine. You have done so much incredible work, and that's why I had to reach out to you and talk to you today. I find with the population that I work with, who is not white, there are different challenges that are faced when going through fertility that don't seem fair in many instances. And, and so I'm just putting that right out there to start the conversation, if that's okay. Absolutely. So how did you get involved in working in this and becoming you know, a spokesperson for it and making changes? In the field of infertility, I've always been very intrigued with helping persons to build their families. I come from a very large family on both my mother and father's side, only one sibling, but both of my parents were one of many. And when I was pursuing medical school and realized that, you know, some people had such trouble to build the families that they desired, I mean, that really just weighed on me and I enjoyed the field so immensely. But along those lines, you know, like many things in medical school, you know, there are certain nuances to every single field. And one of the striking things for me was learning that, you know, even within infertility, there are certain groups that still have a disadvantage. And why should that exist? You know, IVF has been around for over 40 years. We have other treatments for infertility that have been around even longer. And so, you know, for the most part, we have a, a, a good understanding of how to evaluate infertility, how to treat it, what options to offer. But even still, those options are not available to so many different populations. And so that's where I really started to get in, interested um, in health disparities and understanding what drives them, what are the, the dividing lines, why do certain groups have different access and outcomes of infertility treatment. Why do you think that is? I mean, I have a practice which is probably so tiny and so small when we look at the field of infertility, but yet even in my practice, I see it in play, you know, and I see the struggles that go on. I see it a lot with donor conception. I see people coming to the, the, the table, so to speak, a little bit older. Mm-hmm. So what do you think it is that this um, dichotomy associated I don't think there's anything unique to infertility. This is a problem that plagues the American healthcare system. We've always had two different, (laughs) um, you know, parallel but unequal systems in this country. And so I think it's important for, you know, anyone working in the infertility space to realize that we are not immune to that. This is much is a reflection, a mirror of a much larger issue and problem. 
So the same reasons why, you know, women of color have higher rates of death and morbidity in childbirth are the same reasons why we see them later for infertility care, why they may have harder times navigating through the system to get the care that they need, or it may be, you know, less referred to even see us. And that plays into the reason why you may see women who are older or who've had a more advanced disease or who may be more resistant um, to proceeding with, you know, donor um, conception and things like that. So I don't think that there are, there are some things that are unique to our field in terms of, you know, just the issues that we see, but it really is a reflection of the overall American healthcare landscape. I'm so glad that you said that. What I find very often is that much of fertility treatment is parallel to what was going on prior to the fertility treatment. Absolutely. So if you've been having challenges navigating the system, you're going to have challenges navigating the system. And because there's so much going on, it may even be more so. I agree with that. And I think that's something that is um, not really appreciated enough, even from providers in this space, is how much of yourself you have to give when you decide to pursue fertility treatment. There's a lot of new language. There can be a lot of expense because unfortunately infertility is not universally universally covered by health insurance. There may be many visits, even in terms of diagnostics, you know, we may need you to come in at different days during your cycle or more than one visit, or, you know, there are lots of different kinds of components. And so, you know, for certain groups of people, working people, working class, men and women, that can be really difficult to navigate. You know, how do you tell your job that you need, you know, multiple mornings off or a later start or unpredictable day off because you're during treatment um, in order to kind of pursue this, this area of your life and your health? So I think that's, you know, something else that's pretty unique in the infertility space that we don't really recognize is how much of a Uh, a sacrifice it is for some people. And it really takes a lot of resolve, a lot of commitment, a lot of support, not just social support from the workplace, as I mentioned, from your partner or your social circle, um, from your insurance company. (laughs) I really say that it touches the biopsychosocial components of life. There's not a component it doesn't touch. And, and that's so hard. And, you know, I love what you said, because it covers the gamut. And the fact that one in eight experience infertility, almost one in nine, I almost want to say one in nine all the time, because the number leans more towards nine, but it's not there yet it softens it. It makes it a bit easier these days. The fact that there are over 500 people advocating last week, and you were one of them, right, with Resolve, you know, is huge and tremendous. So I think we're starting to gain momentum. One of the things, though, that stands out to me dramatically, and I'm sorry to belabor if I'm belaboring this, but I really want people to know it, and I want people to start to feel comfortable having this conversation is that when somebody of an African-American or or different descent goes to get a donor egg or donor sperm or donor embryo or even adoption, things change. The supply isn't the same and it becomes harder. And I've had people travel out of the country to be able 
to have a donor and it's very expensive. And then when it's not available, it's very traumatic. So how do we help them? How do we help people understand that it's part of the process, it's part of the journey, but we wanna make it better? And how do we get people of different nationalities to consider donating? Yeah, I think that's, you know, something that we all struggle with. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about this in the past, just about, you know, it, it seems to be a social stigma uh, and whether that is real or perceived, there is still a, a barrier, a block, um, be it mental, be it social, be it financial, about proceeding with, you know, donor conception. And, and, and one, um, can I add one thing to that? Absolutely. People who are religious also have religion to face. Absolutely. Because the religion's component, depending on what religion you are, plays a huge role in this. Some religions look, you know, do not approve of Agreed. IVF or donor. Some of them will approve of IVF, not donor. I mean, it, it runs the gamut. And then sometimes it runs the gamut of the community in which you live. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now we, we get into secrecy and privacy. Mm -hmm. So the social stigma is huge with this. Social stigma is huge. And that's why I'm also a huge proponent of including the community in these conversations. You know, I have discussions with lots of different religious leaders about some of the nuances of not just the religion, right? Because there are different kind of fractions and rules um, based on maybe your different, um, what we call like a, a denomination or a sector or anything like that, or even the actual house of worship, you know, the leader um, kind of may interpret things a little bit differently than a, a different leader under the same religion. Um, and so engaging the community in that way is super important. They have to be part of the conversation so that you can understand how best to serve your patients. I don't think any religious leaders want to be strict. They want to see um, their parishioners happy and build families. I mean, it's a huge part of, you know, our human existence and human experience. Um, but, you know, we try to find ways to work within uh, the confines. And I, you know, you'd be surprised that people need the education from providers and then it helps to kind of shape what is what they have available to their parishioners as well. Yeah. And what you just said, though, is so powerful. When I spoke with somebody from the archdiocese, he was fabulous. He really was. And what he said is it's not that the church necessarily doesn't want this. It's that the church is thousands of years old and they haven't caught up with the science. And so um, I, I use this example, and sometimes some people cringe with it, but he said, you can have a child through donor conception. It's not approved through the church necessarily, but if you go to confession, you're always taken back, and the child is always taken back into the church. Right. It's the conception. It is the actual act of conception that the church looks at. Wow, Okay. So in the Jewish religion, it's a little bit different, right? Different, yeah, yeah. And Muslim, it's a little bit different. Right. And Buddhist, you know, the hint, it's very different there. So every religion has their own little caveat. And then every culture has their own on top of that. Absolutely. How do we then reach these women who are of childbearing age and men and let them know, don't wait, come in. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. understand that this is not, 
an issue. This is a human issue. This is not an issue of anything other than being human. And it's not common. I think, you know, one thing that we've been big on is just talking to people. I think the same way there are public health campaigns and public service announcements, commercials, you know, some of the uh, European countries that are having falling birth rates have taken to commercials to, you know, encourage people to have children and to start families sooner. Um, sometimes even, you know, in making sure that childcare is, you know, subsidized and, you know, just kind of reminding them of those incentives and insurances at the public level. And I think that's something that we may want to consider here as well, um, engaging younger people about their reproductive plan and options instead of, you know, the conversation is very skewed towards, you know, just contraception, avoiding, avoiding pregnancy. But if we don't want you to have children when you're not ready, but we do want to make sure you can when you are. And so that requires a kind of a long-term plan of contraception at this time. When would you want to start trying? How, you know, how do you envision your family partnered, unpartnered? Um, you know, when would be a, a good time for you? And then how do you kind of build up your health um, to get to that point? And if you had something like that, then they would already be engaged in the system. So if they ha- started having issues, you could intervene sooner. I and love so that. You're almost saying let's start in the school system. Absolutely. That's what yes, I'm it has. Because we, yeah, I was talking about the other day. Let's start in the schools. Let's let them know. Let's not teach just how to use contraceptive, but let's just really teach how the human anatomy works and what we need to do. Yeah, I mean, we we do the same in other areas. There's been big campaigns around reducing obesity around reducing, you know, heart disease. And none of these are things that you can do overnight. You don't want to wait until someone has obesity or heart disease, but you know, for children, we have nutrition and we, you know, have physical activity for them. And there are, you know, different kinds of interventions that are appropriate at each stage of development. And I think, you know, reproductive health as part of an overall package of, you know, just health and well-being needs to start sooner. I think that's a fabulous idea to get it in the school system sooner and get it out there. And then the stigma will change, hopefully, or at least the awareness and the knowledge that, you know what, maybe I do need to go for help because people think this 35, you know, is this magic number. And I try and explain to everybody, it's not like you turn 35 and all of a sudden there's a change in your body, <laughs> you know, and it, and, and all of a sudden you get called another name that doesn't feel right. Yeah. And yeah. we need to kind of change that dialogue so that people don't think, okay, I'm 35. Now I'm in trouble. No. Or start planning at 35. Oh, 35. Now I have to do something. Well, maybe if we'd started your plan sooner, you know, it would feel like less urgency and less like a, you know, a now or never kind of plan, you know, there's fertility preservation, there are different, maybe people would even make different life decisions um, if they knew and understood more about the natural progression of fertility. Because I think something from the provider standpoint that's hard is, you know, a lot of people think they have more time than they do, 
We yeah. see celebrities, you know, having pregnancy announcements in 40s and even 50 um, and not really understanding all of the work that it took to get there. Um, I wish more, you know, celebrities and public figures were honest about how they built their families so that people would have that kind of understanding. Yeah, I, I have. I'm sorry, I find that when every single celebrity gets pregnant, that's like 40 plus. The people I'm working with always train research how they got pregnant. And a lot of them do not say, and they have the right to keep it private, but Camille Gatti, who I'm working with, on, um, on trying to change some of the conversation regarding donor conception and adoption has been a huge advocate for letting people know about donor conception and letting people know that it is a wonderful way to build a family. And so to get that message out there to every community is just vital. It, it really is. It is. I have also noticed, it's interesting you mentioned Camille, because I have noticed more storylines um, in television shows and movies um, that reflect all the different ways that people build families. And I think that is so important. Um, because it's, it, you know, for better or worse, it is another source of information for a lot of people and it breaks down stigma. I, you know, I, I love when I see it done well. Um, and, and that's very important. And, you know, a lot of shows may hire, you know, medical consultants to make sure that they keep it, um, very accurate, but I think that's important as well. Um, just, you know, media portrayals, just public, public portrayals of family building so that people can feel um, more open to the options available. Yeah, so there's actually quite a bit that can be done to make this more, more known really, more socially acceptable. And then mm -hmm. as we do that, every culture will be engaged. It's mm -hmm. not gonna be just one culture, it's gonna be everybody. Everybody will be educated. Yeah, I think it is important to have, you know, the, the messages reflect diversity, right? Because we're a diverse country. And I think a, a big misconception is that infertility as an issue or infertility treatment or even things like IVF are something that's reserved for a certain class of people, namely white, college educated and wealthy. And that's just not true. Infertility affects all people in all populations pretty much equally, if not higher in some groups that may have different disadvantages. You know, I know we tend to think about race a lot in the United States of America, but race is really a social construct. It is not, um, a, this is not a biologic basis, you know, when this country was founded. <laughs> well, when it was that. founded, we categorized people based on how they looked and, you know, in some cases where in the world they came from. Um, but that does not lend itself to our biology. And so, you know, to think that certain groups have more or less infertility or that certain groups are more fertile than others, it's, it's just not true. The circumstances can be a lot different. Um, in different groups. And, and it's important for me to make sure that it's clear that infertility affects everyone. So therefore everyone needs to be evaluated. Their concerns need to be taken seriously. Um, and they have the right to treat this medical condition, which is infertility. In terms of, you know, progression to donor, you know, gametes, eggs and sperm, you know, it is difficult um, for persons of color sometimes to 
find what they need in terms of um, the availability of donor eggs and donor sperm. Um, but there can be a lot of, you know, just blocks to access in that area as well. It's, it's a costly option. Um, it's very rarely covered by insurance. Um, and again, we talk a lot about just community acceptance, social acceptance, religious acceptance, um, beyond overt rules, just what people are, feel comfortable with based on what they've seen around them. And so there can be some, some uh, barriers in that way as well. Yeah, well, I really appreciate this conversation because I think the more conversations that can be had like this, the more we can take the stigma away, the more education we can give, the more seeds we can plant, as, as long as we have the listeners, to open up this conversation all over. So yes, start it in schools, you know? Let's be honest with children. You wanna contracept until you wanna conceive. And sometimes it doesn't just happen overnight. And let's Absolutely. start in the communities. Let's go into the houses of worship and let people know. Let's go into wherever it is that people are gathering and just let people know, put it on television, have it as storylines, have it as media lines. And absolutely. let's just make it not, not something that's not normal because if one in almost nine are impacted by this, everybody's struggling alone. Great. Well, thank you. Cause this was, I think so much food for thought. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm definitely happy to be here, happy to continue these conversations. Um, you know, it's my pleasure to talk on these topics because it just, it always surprises me how much people don't know and don't recognize. Um, and I want everyone to feel equally accepted into this infertility space. You know, there's this common uh, line that this is, you know, the sorority or the club that nobody actually wanted to join. And, you know, that's, that's real. This is a, a very hard diagnosis, a very hard life position to be in. Um, and to have certain groups, you know, not feel like this is a place where they can, um, you know, seek support or guidance or even, you know, access effective treatment. Um, is just an injustice. And so it shouldn't be. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the support also, because there are support groups. And I think it's important to find one that works for you. Because this is such a hard journey to go down. And sometimes you feel like nobody understands and nobody's listening. Right. And to add other components to it. So before we end, is there something that you think each person could do to make a difference in this? Yeah, I, I talk about it quite frequently, but I think it's very important to share your individual stories. Um, just recently, you know, I was talking to, had a lot of difficult conversations with patients this week, um, but particularly around so much frustration and shame about needing to kind of progress their care for maybe one treatment to another. Um, this didn't work. Is it going to work for me? And you know, one thing that always resonates with me is they have no idea how many other patients I've seen or how many other similar conversations I've had that week. And, you know, just this idea that I'm the only person who's going through this 
is is a big one. And so, you know, again, it's not that you need to publicize your story. I don't need you to take out an ad in a newspaper. Um, but I really do encourage people to share their stories, even if that's just within their own social circle, even their own family. You know, sometimes I'll ask, have you told your parents that you're going through this or your siblings? And they say, no. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, that's so hard because it means that you don't have that support that you need around you. Sometimes they can be, you know, just nervous about how people are going to respond. But I do think that it's really important to share your story so that other people understand, okay, this doesn't necessarily have to be so scary. This is not the end of the road. I know so-and-so who did these things and, you know, and this is how it turned out for them. And so I think that's a really important part of all of this as well is, is just to, to kind of be part of that collective voice about what's happening. Yeah. And I think sometimes when you're in it, it becomes hard to have that conversation because anything somebody says could just make you feel like they just don't get it. They don't understand, but maybe after is the time to stand up and say, Hey, I went through that. And it's okay. It's going to be okay. And maybe that's a good time. I know at donor conception specifically, a lot of people don't want to stand up afterwards and say it's okay. But IVF, I think, has, has moved that bar. And if people could start to stand up and talk to people about it, I, I so agree with you. You know, you have so much to offer. I really appreciate it so much. It just shows how much we have to do. Yeah. We have a long way to go. There's been great, you know, um, strides made in our field. I think we're always looking for the new and the next and the best and how do we push it forward. But, you know, part of what I do is to say we have this amazing technology. Now let's extend who can actually access it. Yes, that's the issue. Let's extend yeah, it. It's huge. We have to increase access to what we have available right now. Um, and that doesn't mean that one trumps the other. I think that there's space and, and room for everyone. You know, we have to have our scientists and our uh, clinician scientists at the forefront who are pushing us forward, who are, you know, updating and reinventing and creating new technologies that will, you know, have significant impacts for families and, and who are trying to build their family. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have this incredible technology, namely in vitro fertilization, but even just access to the full range of opportunities, you know, within infertility care that's severely underutilized. Um, and so we have to increase the access. What you're saying is so true. It's like, okay, we have this fabulous recipe. It's fabulous. It can help everybody because we're all the same. Our biology is our biology. But before we go create another one, let's just let everybody have access to this one. You know, so- Well, think about it. Look at, look yes. at what we did with the COVID vaccination. It yes. was a very specific technology, you know, had been working on it for years, wasn't sure exactly- when would be the best opportunity to it? But we poured millions, if not billions of dollars into a focused effort, was able to create a vaccination incredibly effective. I mean, have we ever seen anything like this in our lifetime? Okay. Very effective against a novel virus, um, a deadly virus. And we immediately had to disseminate it. 
And, you know, it's, it's still not um, as equally distributed as we would want, particularly around the world, but just an example in our own country of what is possible when you realize that everybody needs equal access. You can get a COVID vaccination at, at Costco, at Walgreens, yeah. in a library, in a school cafeteria, a church. You know, at some point they were had people doing door to door with the single dose Johnson and Johnson vaccination. This is something it just shows you the opportunity of when everybody is on the same page, how best you can kind of get the message out. And so I feel like one of my post COVID takeaways is I can't accept anything less for my field because it shows me what is possible. Yeah, I got tears in my eyes. Thank you so much for your time. And if somebody wants to get a hold of you, how would they do that? They can follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Tia Jackson Bay. Okay, great. And you'll get to see this great smile when they go on, which I love. And if anybody has any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me at laurimetz.net. <laughs>